Will Dictinus grant us clear voices, strong sound, and good reads. Accept the universe as the gods gave it to you. If the gods wanted to give you something... I think we need a drink. We're going to take a drink. Just, perfect. <laughs> just, just leave it. It's a perfect intro. Oh my god. That's so funny. <laughs> hey, what were you uh... trying to say? Please, do continue. Accept the universe as the gods gave it to you. If the gods wanted you to have something else, they'd have done it. Welcome to Deep Dives 2, the 196th episode of Three Pagans and a Cat. Our opening today is courtesy of 19th century Portuguese poet Fernando Pessoa. You may call me Ode. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> your, your brother's laughing. God damn it. <laughs> okay. Mary Meet, my name is Gwyn. And yes, we are cracking up because hopefully Ode will leave the proof of why <laughs> in the beginning. Because it's been a long fucking time since we've had a good laugh on this podcast. Brandon Grace says, it's been so long since Ode literally choked on an intro. <laughs> <sighs> oh, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> the third voice. Uh, I'm Jax or Jackson, doesn't matter which. <laughs> and he is my brother. That's yes. Right. Housekeeping, I guess. I have nothing to report at this time, but I will next month. So just a reminder that we've updated our Patreon. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have a assorted new rewards for the tiers. All the tiers are the, are the same um, price points and the same names and everything, just different rewards. So one of the reward levels, I think it's leopards? Question mark? <laughs> I don't know. One of the reward yes, tiers. Yes, I do believe it is leopard. One of the reward tiers, you get to see a page every month out of Jackson's Herbarium. Which is very, very beautiful. Yes. And very, very well researched. Yeah, so it's one page sheet for each particular herb. And then we also now do behind the scenes uploads for every episode. So I should have got a picture of you drinking water. So you get to see photos of our notes and photos of behind the scenes stuff. All that kind of stuff. All that so, kind of stuff. So if you're curious, uh, go go ahead and check out the Patreon, see what the new rewards are. Yep. Um, we're trying to be more active on the Patreon now. Yes, so. we are. We're trying to improve the overall Three Pagans and a Cat experience. But I think that's it for housekeeping for the moment. Yes. So we are housekept. And housewept. So we are going to be doing another one of these deep dives episodes. I promise we're not going to do them every other week all the time. It's just that we we skipped a week, so this is how it ended up. (laughs) And I am sorry that I missed the Satanism week. Yes. But I understand that it was a wonderful, wonderful episode. I've seen lots of good chatter about it. Yes, uh, lots of good discussion in our Discord server, which Mm -hmm. I invite everybody who listens to join. Actually, some good critiques have come out of that. Jackson and I somehow both missed some... Uh, criticisms of Lucian Greaves, who founded the Satanic Temple. Yeah, criticism and a little bit of controversy. Uh huh. Yeah. So if you want to go check out that kind of stuff, find links to that stuff in the episode discussions channel on our Discord server, and I also linked some of it in the episode notes for our Satanism episodes. If you want to get up to date on some of the stuff Jackson and I missed out on, and thank you to the Discord and to the Pride for sort of keeping us true. Well, because we cannot be expected to hear every everything and to know everything, and sometimes... We're not know, experts, we're as not, we say. As we say, yes, we are not experts, but sometimes things, you miss mm-hmm. uh, some of the, the things that are happening. We'll yeah. update there on the last episode. And now we're going to get into the new one. Deep Dives is a series where we're going to be talking about lesser-known deities, which is sort of a 
a vague category. Or well-known deities, but maybe not as well-known as one thinks. Uh-huh. Or, or we just really felt like talking about it. Or we just really felt like talking about it. So, Gwyn, how about you start? Why do I always be the one to start? Because uh, you're to my left, and I think I, I automatically go left to right. <laughs> like dinner? Like dinner passing? Or is that No, right I, I, think it's, I think it's because I read left to right. Oh, okay. It's, that would be my guess. I don't right. know. All right. So I shall go first. And uh, the deity or divine ancestor that I chose to talk about today is the Kayach. Mm. And I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. There's a couple of different ways to pronounce it according to what I heard on, you know, like on YouTube. Mm -hmm. How do you pronounce? Blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And uh, the most common that I heard was Kayach. Okay. Spell it. It is spelled C-A-I-L-L-E-A-C-H. Sometimes there are other (laughs) spellings for it because... This is a divine ancestor who is basically known through Ireland, Scotland, Isle of Man, is popular and and well-known in both their ancient folklore as well as their modern-day folklore. But basically, Kalyach is a divine ancestor associated with the creation of the landscape and with the weather, especially storms and winter. The word literally means old woman or hag. and is found with this meaning in modern Irish and Scottish, and has been applied to numerous mythological and folkloric figures in uh, Ireland. In modern folklore, she is known as the Hag of Bera, and Bera, or Bera, the Queen of Winter in Scotland. Kaliach comes from the Old Irish, same word, I don't know how it's pronounced differently, which means veiled one. And the Kaliach also has an association, as I mentioned, with winter, wilderness, horned beasts, or cattle. In the 8th and 9th century, Irish poem is probably the first time, the first mention of the Kaliach. It's uh, the Lament of the Old Woman, where she's known as Digdi or Digde. In the Hunt of Sliv Kulun, she is Milukra. Sister of Aine, who I believe is one, I don't remember how, that's one of the deities. I can't remember exactly how her name is pronounced. A-I-N-E. There is some speculation because of an obscure word, which is sometimes interpreted as hag. There may also be a connection between the Kaliach and the stone carvings of the Sheelanigigs. Because she is connected to stones and mountains Mm -hmm. and the land. In Scotland, she is said to have made the mountains and large hills. I love this. When she was striding across the land and accidentally dropped rocks from her creel or her her wicker basket. She had rocks in a basket. Just carrying a bunch of rocks around. Yeah. And uh, so I love that. And then Lady after my own heart. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They had some rocks and they Mm -hmm. just fell out and she misplaced them and they made mountains and and hills. (laughs) And some legends say that she created them intentionally as stepping stones. Hmm. She is known to carry a hammer for shaping hills and valleys and is said to be the mother of all the gods and goddesses. There is a 20th century folklorist Donald Alexander Mackenzie, um, who says that she is also described or as a, a one-eyed giantess with white hair, blue skin, and rust-colored teeth. Rough. Right? <laughs> Fearsome. But she is said to be um, the queen of winter. That's mm-hmm. one of her... One of her uh, epithets. Epithets. Bira, queen of winter. And um, she is said to herd deer, fight spring, and has a staff that can freeze the ground. 
I've also heard that in, and I've, I actually uh, include this in my own uh, recognition of winter and spring and the changing of seasons, that in partnership with Breed or Brigid or Brigid, however you choose to say her name, she, uh, the Kayach is a seasonal deity because, you know, queen of winter. And she rules winter between Samhain and Beltane. And actually, uh, apparently, local festivals in Ireland and Scotland, they, they actually will name their seasonal festivals of winter and spring based on, you know, those names, mm. the names of the deities that are in charge of them. And it is said that the transfer of power begins at Imbolc, which is Brigid's day, and that on this day is when the Kaliach gathers her firewood for the rest of the winter. So if the day is bright and sunny, she can gather lots of wood, and so winter is said to be, to, really to be extended because she has plenty of wood for her fire. But if it's a stormy day, kind of gray or you know rainy, that means she'll stay asleep and run out of wood sooner. And spring will come sooner. Interesting. Yeah. And so there's a lot of really interesting, um, you know, between Scotland and Ireland and, and the different names that she's that are associated with her and the different legends that are associated with her. And in some I read that the Kaliak actually holds Brigid under the ground <laughs> and then releases her at spring. But I did have the great honor um, several years ago when I was uh, part of that online coven, I did have the honor of channeling or manifesting the Kalyach for a winter ritual. And that, let me tell you, was a very deep and profound experience. She was very present. It was definitely kind of like this cold in the sense of winter, not in the sense of uh, aloofness. Mm -hmm. I find all of this really, really interesting to hear more about the Kalyach, because usually when you hear a the name, at least, mentioned in modern mm -hmm. pop culture is seen as an antagonistic, like, crone figure. Mm -hmm. I believe the Wheel of Time has the Kaliach as, mm -hmm. the, as one of the yeah. antagonists. Yeah. So it's just a very much, like, a misinterpretation of mythology. I feel like so, because I, even though she is considered the Queen of Winter and maybe extending winter right. by, you know, getting Which all to, that firewood. Which, to be fair, would have been to some degree antagonistic to, yeah. to peoples who relied on the weather. <laughs> right, right. But yet, I don't get that sense in the in the things that I read that she's like, I mean, she can be fierce, I think, because she does have that crone or, or hag or veiled one kind of energy. My experiences with her, I wouldn't say grandmotherly by any stretch of the imagination. She was definitely, I felt like, at least when I was working with her, that she was approachable. But definitely, like I said, had very strong opinions. Elle is saying, having not worked with either one, she gives me similar vibes to Angra Boda. Badass, but not unfriendly, as long as you don't fuck around. Yeah. Yeah, that, that from my familiarity with Angra Boda, that doesn't sound inaccurate. Yeah, just, just based on how mom has described the Kaliach. I do think mm -hmm. Angrabova is more localized because she's specifically the Witch of the Ironwood and not sort of like a generalized winter spirit. So I, mm -hmm. I would I would guess that the Kaliach, having had no experience with her, I would guess that she's bigger mm -hmm. in that sense than Angrabova. But yeah, they, they I can see they have a some they would have a similar vibe. I would also guess that uh, that the Kaliach doesn't have the kind of like wild wolf aspects that Angrabova has. Mm -hmm. uh, although interesting that they are both technically giants. Yep. And both wilderness-type spirits, mm -hmm. just different types of yeah. wilderness. Yeah. Would the Kaliach be associated with woods at all, do you think? Or would it be more like barren plains, I, like icy? 
Yeah, I got the sense that it was more, it's rocky, so, oh, you know. okay, so like, like a mountain Mountains, pass. yeah. Okay, interesting. Mountains and valleys and critters that roam those places. Okay. And am I remembering this correctly, that she lives in a cave? I believe that is correct, okay. yes. So, definitely, there's there's a chthonic energy there mm-hmm. again. Yeah, very much a chthonic energy. Okay, Jackson, it's your turn. Mm-hmm. Alrighty, so I picked an Egyptian god for, for my first uh, deep dive. He's a... a the minor Egyptian god Bess, B-E-S. Um, there is also a feminine counterpart called Bestet, not to be confused with Bastet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the interesting thing that I found about about this particular god was very minor, wouldn't even be mentioned in the same sentence as Ra, mm-hmm. but um, was very widely worshipped from the Old Kingdom all the way up to the Roman occupation, which is roughly 3,300 years. Would he have been like a household deity? Yes. So Bess is a god of warfare, humor, music, merriment, and childbirth and the protection of children. Interesting. Yes. That's such a fascinating sphere. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, the interesting thing is, um, before I get into the, the depths of all of this, the deets. I was looking around and there's a, actually a lot of museum pieces that have depictions of Bess on them from amulets to statuary that look... Like, they may have served a similar function to a grotesque, because they were at, like, the entrances of okay. temples and okay. all these things. People's homes. So, people may not be familiar with a grotesque. But yes. So. so, a grotesque is a gargoyle that is not made for the drainage of water. Mm-hmm. Um, so, they have the similar look of a gargoyle, that kind of face meant to scare away spirits, which is another function of Bess. Mm-hmm. So, the interesting thing about Bess is Bess is... A dwarf-like figure, weirdly long arms, a very sort of grizzled face, long beard, very stout. And depending on the depiction that you see, he's either very serious or like got a big old smile. Again, the fascinating thing is most of the other Egyptian gods are depicted from a side angle, a profile. Mm -hmm. Bess is always face on. Hmm. Interesting. What he did was protected mothers during childbirth and children by scaring away evil spirits during the process of childbirth. So Bess is the only other god that would be present other than Tawere, the uh, the Egyptian goddess of motherhood. Okay. So when a child is being born. So like they 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 work together in that process. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wondering if the reason Bess was forward facing and the others were so- always sideway- sideways is it made him more approachable. Possibly it's the approachability, and possibly it's because the face is meant to scare, scare. away spirits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ella's calling Bess the god who breaks the fourth wall. Yeah. <laughs> yes, honestly, like, it's it's really interesting. And there are pots with the shape of Bess's head hmm. um, that have survived to the current day. You can see them in museums. Oh, wow. Interesting. Um, they're fascinating looking. Because it's it's this very like have you heard of the like the the concept of naming your child something unpleasant to scare away spirits? Yes. I have heard of that. Yeah. It feels like a very similar vibe, like just this sort of have the spooky almost face. grotesque face. I'm looking at pictures. Interesting. Interesting. It's fascinating. You I guys love Google it. best and then hit images. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. So, but the 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 very cool thing about Bess is because worship of Bess, despite being a minor deity, mm-hmm. lasted all the way up until the Roman occupation, Romans adopted mm-hmm. Bess too. As, as they usually do. <laughs> as a symbol of protection and a symbol of warfare. Mm. So they would like pray to Bess before they went into battle. 
So the Romans got, like, the protection from evil spirits thing and were like, ah, war god. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The main sort of aspect, especially in the more modern times, Mm -hmm. is a protector of everyone who asks. From the pharaoh to other deities to common people, protect anybody who asks for it. A super interesting facet of, of this god is if a child in ancient Egypt was laughing for no reason, it was assumed a good portion of the time that Bess was in the room pulling funny faces. Aww, that's <laughs> cute. Rhiannon Gray says, images of people were always set sideways in Egypt to avoid evil from stealing the form of humans, and I imagine that somewhat applied to deities too. Mm. So of course Bess didn't have that concern. Because yep. Bess was going to scare away any evil spirits that might otherwise steal his form. I read someplace that it's the combination of like a human and a lion. So because he's a god of childbirth and, and fertility as well, mm-hmm. some women would get tattoos on their body to increase their, their sex life and their opportunity mm-hmm. to get uh, to have a child, that mm-hmm. kind of fertility thing. Mm-hmm. And I think there was even a practice of like a, a newlywed couple would like sleep together under the image of Bess. Interesting. To try to have a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, god of fertility and, and childbirth, mm-hmm. so. Yeah. Uh, and the last kind of two things that I want to say is there were, aside from just like stoneware vessels, there were also cups with the image of Bess because it would give you the sort of healing and protective power of Bess. Mm-hmm. And you would fill it with like, you would fill it with medicines. And it like absorbs best energies. Mm-hmm. I want a best mug. <laughs> yeah. In a more modern time, so the Phoenicians also adopted Bess into their mm-hmm. religious culture, and that sort of led to something interesting in Spain where the residents of the island of Ibiza mm. claim that the name of the island originates from the god Bess. It would have been the island of Bess originally. Interesting. And then turned into, uh, yeah. That's very, very interesting. Fascinating. I love this god so much, I want to learn much more about him. Yeah, he seems very cool. Ivy Rose is wondering if he was the presence in the delivery room with uh, Ivy Rose's youngest child. Aww. it's He sounds like a very accessible deity. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. one who is like, you need some help? Let me help. Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, and if you want to see some cool stuff, there are a lot of online museum collections that have pottery and amulets and like reliefs and mm-hmm. stone stone statues all of best apparently his image was so prolific that it has lasted well into the modern day yeah i would i would say that's a definitely a point in the the column of him being approachable yeah um because it seems at least during the heyday of ancient egypt he mm-hmm. was Fucking everywhere. And apparently still is. Uh-huh. Um, I find it interesting, though, that he was so prolific and there were so many images of him. Mm-hmm. But still a minor still deity. still a minor deity that we really don't hear about. Probably because he's a household deity. Yeah. More than anything. Yeah. With the addition of warfare, but, like, mostly around the house and home. And that was a relatively late addition mm-hmm. yeah. to yeah. his catalog, as it were. So interesting. Thank he you was for the people's deity. Yeah. The people's deity. <laughs> that is actually... Um, I was reading a, a piece written written by someone who worked at a museum and, and some Egyptologists have been saying that uh, he's very much like he started off with protecting the pharaohs and the other deities and then became the people's deity. Mm. I think that's very cool. I, I like love that. how things like that evolve. Uh, Ran and Gray is saying they had a friend who worked with Bess and that from that friend's report, 
He's just a fun, cheeky dude. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> about right. <laughs> Roshala says, not only a minor deity, but one that we don't really hear about and hasn't been Hollywoodized. Mm-hmm. Which is very interesting. Because it seems like, with his image being so well-known, it would be one that people were more familiar with. But that's why we're covering it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, since Jackson did his Egyptian deity, I'm going to talk about my Egyptian deity that I picked for today. So, I picked Heka, who is the ancient Egyptian deity of both medicine and magic, because those concepts were very... Intertwined. Um, yes, very connected in ancient Egypt. Heka's name means magic. Its hieroglyphics include the word for Ka, and in some of the the texts that refer to Heka, he's referred to as the Lord of Ka. He's supposed to be sort of the personification, the deification of magic itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so also was sort of the the origin point of the soul. So he provided and protected people's vital force, which was uh, the Ka, which was one of the many parts of the ancient Egyptian soul. There were no known temples or ritual worship of Heka. He did exist very, very early on in the Old Kingdom, and again, persisted all the way to Roman Egypt, but there wasn't a cult of Heka. Right. There were priests of Heka, mm-hmm. and those were doctors. Right. But there was not like a standard ritual form for honoring Heka. Heka was not, as far as we can tell, like actively worshipped because he was just in everything right. all the time. It was ever present. In fact, Heka was so pervasively present that like 19th and 20th century Egyptologists didn't recognize Heka's existence as an individual deity. They, they thought it would, that Heka was just the word for magic. magic. And it was a while before they realized this unattributed figure was the personification of that. Yeah. Heka has two sort of origin stories. One that comes in much later and then sort of the original origin story of Heka, which is that there is no origin story of Heka. Heka was the first thing. Uh, just before, always existed. Just always existed before all the gods. There's actually a, a phrase attributed to Heka in the coffin texts that says, to me belonged the universe before you gods came into being. Ooh. Um, I like that. Yeah. So Heka was first, was before everything, is the vital animating force of magic and the universe. And in fact, in some of the pyramid and coffin texts, it's said that the gods used Heka to create things, like mm. to, to build creation mm. out of the absence of things. Heka was there as an attendant and providing the vital animating force of the universe as the gods were creating it. Mm-hmm. And before the gods came into being, there was only Heka. Interesting. Yeah. So traditionally, Heka is the oldest being or force in the universe. Later versions of Heka's mythology would have him as the son of Menhet and Gnum, whose names mean massacre and fertility, respectively. Typical. Yeah. <laughs> but but those deities are from different... So, like, Menhet is an import from Nubian mythology, mm-hmm. and Gnum is is a deity who developed later than Heka did. So it's unclear, like, why that became part of the mythology later, and it seems to have been localized to a specific area. But generally speaking, for most of Heka's existence, the accepted 
understanding of Hekka has just been that Hekka was first mm-hmm. and is everywhere and is forever. Yeah. Kind of like the force. Yeah. Hekka is the force with a face. <laughs> <laughs> so Hekka is often portrayed uh, uh, carrying a, a staff that has two serpents on it. Mm-hmm. That symbol was adopted from Ninazu of Sumer. So it, it wasn't originally one of Hekka's symbols, but it was adopted from the symbology of a, a nearby pantheon. And from Hekka, it would move on to Asclepius and become mm-hmm. the Caduceus symbol, which is in the modern day associated with medicine. Right. Shala is saying mm-hmm. any etymological connection between Hekka and Hekati. Um, not that I was able to find. It is talked about in some of the books of, of Hecate. Again, uh, it's not one of those that can really be proven. Personally, I don't think there is any real connection between Heka and Hekati. Like, not that the Greeks and the Egyptians didn't interact. They did. Ancient Egypt's Heka mm-hmm. has no mythological similarities right. to Greek Hekati. Yeah. There's just the... Sort of circumstantial similarity in the name. Which might just have something to do with how languages develop. Yeah, there's only yeah. so many syllables. But yeah, so as far as far as I was able to find, there's not like a, a confirmed or even a really strongly supported etymological connection between Hekka and Hekati. Other than the fact that she was a deity of magic. And sure. You know, and I think there's that's where some of the, you know, links may but be she attributed. And what I'm saying is where the links may be attributed. They may not necessarily be there, but I think that's where some of the links are being attributed. I think that's where people are inventing some links. Yes, that's what Rather I'm trying, than, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Because she's not a deity of magic in the same way that Hekka is a deity of magic. Yeah. Right. Um Rhiannon says a very good point. Some things are just coincidence, mm-hmm. either just because of the way languages work or because of something we'll never understand as mortals. Yeah, yeah. I, I tend to think that if people who want to put Hekka and Hecate together, it is more of a modern, yeah. And then you it, just end up giving yourself a confirmation bias. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so yeah, based on what I've read it, about it in the in the books that I've read, mm-hmm. I don't think it's very feasible, personally. No, I don't. I, I haven't found any compelling support for it. I'll put yeah. it that way. But it's a good question, because a lot of people yes. ask that. Yeah, it's, a, it's a very common thought. So yeah, Hekka is the personification of the magical or spiritual force. And so because Hekka not just is a being of magic, but is the being magic. Right. All of the work that other gods do is through Hekka. All magic, including the magic that everyone else in the pantheon does, pulls on Hekka's power mm-hmm. and is in fact called Hekka. Uh, so like the deification of of a primordial force. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Just like when, uh, you know, in the Greek mythologies, you know, the sun, the moon. Arguably more than that even. More. Because like Hekka existed before the sun and the moon existed. It True. seems like it would be like deifying, deifying atoms. Yeah. So, so Rana Gray actually says something. Big capital C, chaos, the deity, energy. Before both the force, the godhood, and everything that chaos is seems to vibe big time with Hecka. Yeah. So that's actually an interesting point. Yes and no. Yes, in the sense of Hecka was before everything. And in a, a lot of pantheons, what we would consider as having existed before the universe is just primordial chaos. That's certainly true in like Norse mythology, Ganungagap. The Norse parallel here would be if Ganungagap had a personhood, right. that would be Hekka. Right. But in Egyptian cosmology, there's a very important force called Mat, M-A-apostrophe-A-T. A-T. And Mat is the right 
ordering of the universe. Mm -hmm. The diametric opposite of chaos, basically. Right. And there's a belief in Egyptian cosmology that Mat is that the right order of the universe is the natural state of the universe. And that chaos is a malefic force that pulls the universe out of alignment. Mm -hmm. Actually, in Egyptian cosmology, Heka would be not so much a big chaos deity as a big order deity. Mm -hmm. Because he existed before anything that could cause chaos existed. Mm -hmm. So Heka's role, and one of the roles Heka performs regularly, is restoring order. He sometimes accompanies various gods who are resisting the forces of chaos or fighting chaotic deities mm -hmm. and provides Heka or magic Stability. to those gods so that they have the power to do so. Magic is very much the like woven fabric of the universe and mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. pull everything in line with it. Yep. Very and that's true. part of why medicine and magic were so closely intertwined. Right. Was the belief that illnesses especially, but also injuries, were the result of chaos acting on humans mm. and causing harm. Right. And so to heal sickness, what you had to do was bring, res order, to bring, bring order to the human being, mm -hmm. to the body. And you did that through Heka, by invoking Heka, by using magic. Doctors and magicians were the same career in right. ancient Egypt. Right. Because Heka was the personification of magic and magic was thought to sort of interpenetrate and perform everything in existence, Heka was invoked at the beginning of important magical texts, even when those texts were not really about Heka or didn't otherwise involve him to certify that those texts are true and that the magic in them works. Basically, mm -hmm to make them authoritative. Right. And that's partly because magic in ancient Egypt, and Heka especially, was associated with thought and speech, mm. who were also personified deities, Saya and Hu, who were associated with Heka, because it was thought that a gift Heka gave to humans was the thoughts that were in your heart <laughs> that made you uh, an individual person, and that you could then express through the tongue as language and that that was how you transformed your your internal magic that you had gained from Heka into active magic that you performed on the world. As the Romans would say, vocius magicae. Exactly. Yeah, so Heka's really, really interesting. He lost a lot of sort of mythological power um, after the Roman period, especially uh, when Amun started to, mm. to sort of reign supreme mm -hmm. during the, the early stages of pre-Christianization and Christianization in Egypt, Amun sort of took over that role of like transcendental, single, most important, like interpenetrating eternal deity. Right. Heka got smooshed down yeah. as a result because there couldn't, obviously there couldn't be room for two right. eternal interpenetrating transcendental deities. Right. Heka lost some supremacy during that time and uh, never really climbed back up the rankings. But he was very, very important and very present in ancient Egypt. Well, that makes sense, though, if he was kind of like with Bess. You know, they were he was part of everything, very woven into the fabric and the belief and healing mm -hmm. of the people. So, yeah, actually, something I've forgot to mention was there was only like one structure affiliated with directly with best like mm -hmm. a temple mm -hmm. and it was next to 
a vineyard so he could look over mm. look over the production <laughs> of wine. This reminds me of Dionysus. Yeah, I get Dionysus I thinking, vibes. I would definitely from this. get Dionysus vibes. <laughs> yeah, so I did I did find it really, really interesting that Hecka never had any temples, mm-hmm. never had any cults. The closest they got was the doctors were known as priests of Hecka because right. they performed Hecka, shows up constantly in, in writings and was invoked constantly in mm-hmm. daily life to, to perform small magical tasks and things. Right. But I can see why Egyptologists got confused uh-huh. about whether or not there was a personification or if it was just magic as a thing, mm-hmm. because it seems like they were both at the same time. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Hekka, Hekka is, is magic, and mm-hmm. magic, all magic, is, is Hekka. Hekka. Um, and that was a hard concept for early Egyptologists to wrap their brains around. <laughs> I think it can be hard for us to wrap our brains mm-hmm. around that if you really stop to think about yeah, it. Yeah, because it's it's not that Hekka is a deity of magic or right. that like Hekka is a deity who works with magic right. or is a- associated with but magic is... or, or magic is his sphere of influence. Hekka just is, is magic. all magic that is ever performed. And I think that in... It, for... it, in a way, magic is the body of Hekka. Right. And I think that in itself is a good reason why, you know, going back to the Hekka, Hecate mm-hmm. potentiality, the fact is that Hecate is not magic. Hecate is a goddess of right. magic. She performs magic. She performs magic and her devotees perform magic, but she is not magic itself, mm-hmm. which I think is a big distinction. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rana Gray says, kind of also reminds me of how you're meant to invoke Hestia before worship of any other Greek deity. That's mm-hmm. a good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Since it's my turn. Mm-hmm. I chose to go along with that crone hag energy of uh, the Kaya mm-hmm. and talk about the Baba Yaga. Baba Yaga. <laughs> who is a Slavic being. Uh, she is a supernatural being who can either be an individual or one of a trio of sisters who mm-hmm. all have the same name. All Baba Yaga. Who And uh, the Baba Yaga appears often as a deformed woman or a very ferocious looking woman um kind of a scary witch kind of character Uh, and she i will say she's usually um has like a mortar and a pestle she sometimes has a broom she often lives deep in the forest in a hut standing on chicken legs yes i love baba yaga's cottage baba yaga's cottage but here's the interesting thing about baba yaga she may help or she may hinder and spoil the uh the journey for those who either stumble upon her mm-hmm. or go out looking for her. Mm-hmm. And I think, honestly, I'm not really sure. Maybe it depends on intention. Yeah. Uh, the thing I've always taken away from Baba Yaga is very much, she gives you a lesson learned. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> so she's also associated with wildlife, which makes sense because mm-hmm. she lives in a forest on a hut uh, on top of chicken legs. And here's the other thing is, you know, because she could either help or hinder in some legends, what she does is tests the hero. Mm-hmm. And if the hero passes the test, then she can provide or will provide magical assistance. But there are some tales where she is straight up the villain. She, she is just bad news. She's just bad news. She is meant to, you know, to cause chaos and, and problems for the hero. But in other times, in other legends, she's just ambiguous. She is enigmatic. And ambiguous and she's present and you feel her presence but you're not really sure what she's all about she's friend or foe is she friend or foe she so could be either or neither. both she she baba yaga but yet she can be motherly and mm-hmm. 
helpful. Even when Even she in looks this, spooky witch. In this spooky, your typical, quote-unquote, stereotypical like, witch. Eats Hansel and Gretel kind yeah, of witch. Yeah, yeah, like, exactly. She's kind of the stereotype of what modern-day people think mm-hmm. of as a witch. She got layers. She, she got, got layers. Okay, the first clear reference to the Baba Yaga occurs in 1755, where she is mentioned twice in a Russian grammar, among other Slavic figures. The second lists her with a list of Slavic deities, which are next to their presumed Roman equivalents. Mm -hmm. Yet she has no Roman equivalent, which many scholars say it kind of highlights her unique character. She is Whoever was doing the Religio Romana there was like, IDK. (laughs) IDK, she is the Baba Yaga. That is all she is. I haven't figured out who who, I should connect her to. Who can figure out? But the Baba Yaga is a very powerful character within Slavic folklore and legend and mythology. And I think she's pretty cool. For my second uh, deity, I picked uh, Mazu, also known as Matsu, um, a Chinese sea goddess who goes by, oh, so many titles, I wasn't (laughs) able to put them down. (laughs) (laughs) So she's actually the deified form of the legendary... Lin Mo, um, who was a shamaness in the in like 980. When in life, her brothers and some other people were like out lost at sea or, or going through a storm, mm-hmm. and she on the land went into a trance and used her magic to save their lives. Ooh. Her parents thought she was having like a seizure or some kind of fit mm-hmm. and woke her up so some of the people died because she oh. wasn't able to save them. Don't wake her. Mm-hmm. She's yeah. doing important work. So she died unmarried between the ages of 27 and 28 and at some point became this deified figure of like literally a tutelary deity, a deity of protection, mm. um, specifically geared towards seafarers and fishermen. How's okay. the name spelled? Either M-A-Z-U or M-A-T-S-U. Interesting. So you can actually see, I'm not sure where it's located, but there's several of them. A sort of figure of Matsu uh, leaning towards the sea. Stone figures put on a cliff face, mm. almost mm. like a lighthouse. Okay. Interesting. Um, it very much has that like lighthouse-esque vibe mm-hmm. where she's just leaning into the ocean, like Trying projecting out that protection and guide you safety safe harbors. to harbors. Oh, yeah. that's very cool. Yeah. And I always find it interesting when legendary figures mm-hmm. become deified because mm-hmm. what's that like the initial root? Right. Yep. Were they were they a, a real person or were they just a legend? Or a combination of yeah. Um so I thought she was very interesting and I like her a lot. That's very, very cool. cool. Yeah. Very cool. I want to learn more about her. Yeah. There's not a lot that I could find about her as a goddess. A lot of it's about her life as like a legend, legendary shamaness. Yeah. Yeah. That must have been her first like shaman experience though, or people would have known what was happening. (laughs) Right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So my second one, I'm going to go through real fast, I promise, (laughs) is Er, who is, uh, her name means help or mercy. And she is a Norse goddess associated with medicine. I hesitate to say goddess there uh, because she's so she's included in two lists. In in the Eddas, she's included in a list of Asendjörs, which are our goddesses, and she's included in a list of Valkyrie. And traditionally, the Valkyries were not considered goddesses. They were considered important spirits, certainly, but they weren't usually considered goddesses, but Er is listed in 
both places, and it's not super clear if this is the same er in both cases. It's listed in, in the Poetic Edda um, as one of Mengloth's handmaidens, and Mengloth is a giantess, is a Jotnar, who lives on a mountain called called Healing Mountain, Lifjaberg. Mm -hmm. And Mengloth is a, a giantess who has various healing abilities, and she has seven or eight handmaidens, and Er is listed among them mm -hmm. um, as one of her handmaidens who is, is skilled with healing. Then later in the Prose Edda, She's listed among the goddesses. The only piece of information we get about her from Hai, who is the form of Othin in, in this part of the, of the Edda who is describing various deities, all he says about her is that she's an extremely good physician. And then, like I said, later she's listed uh, among the Valkyrie who, who go through the battlefields and collect the fallen, which is a uh, an interesting position for a physician to... Mm -hmm hold. So there's a there's a lot of debate about whether these are the same person and if they are how they sort of mesh together. Mm -hmm. In the Poetic Edda, where she's described as being one of Mengeloth's handmaidens, the person who's, who's talking about Mengeloth and her handmaidens asks if when you perform a bloat to them, when if you perform sacrifices to them, do they, do they protect you? Mm -hmm. And the answer is yes. If you perform sacrifices to Mengeloth and her handmaidens, you will be protected from pestilence for a whole year. So, like, that matches up to the physician aspect. But it also pushes closer to the deity category because you didn't make offerings to the Valkyrie. Mm -hmm. There's, as usual, with every female deity, <laughs> there's a debate about whether she's an aspect of Frigga. Of course. <laughs> because she's also somewhere described as one of Frigga's handmaidens. And then maybe the thought is maybe Mengloth and Frigga are the same person somehow. And then maybe Er and all the handmaidens are also just aspects of Frigga. So that debate goes on eternally. You sound so tired. I'm so tired. <laughs> For every female deity in the Norse pantheon, there's at least one academic out there somewhere who's saying, no, oh, I think she's just an aspect of Frigga. You just know, guaranteed. Frigga is an awesome queen and mother deity. She is. But she doesn't do everything. <laughs> She is, and it's... She knows how to delegate. Yes, she does. <laughs> um, but so another interesting and sometimes confusing thing about Er is, so like I said, her name means help or mercy, but it's also used as a kenning for woman. So a kenning is uh, a part of a Norse poetic tradition where you use one word to substitute in for a different word. Mm -hmm. So we find Er which is the name of this being, at least one, mm -hmm. <laughs> and is also a personal name that some individual women had, also being used as just a stand-in for women generally. So, like, there's a, a sort of complainy poem <laughs> that translates to basically women are exhausting, um, where women is just er, but Clearly, because of the way the rest of the poem is structured, we know they don't mean, like, er, specifically this Valkyrie or, or deity is exhausting. They mean, like, women. women. Ugh. Yeah. Exhausting. So it's really hard to tell who er was mythologically. Right. But in modern heathen practice, it's usually considered that er, A, is not an aspect of Frigga, B, is both a, a goddess in her own right, uh, an Asinur, 
and a Valkyrie. And C is some sort of kind of like a battlefield physician or a surgeon. Mm, that makes sense. And that that's why she goes with the Valkyrie into the battlefields that she accompanies them. And while the rest of the Valkyrie are carrying off the souls of dead soldiers, Er might be choosing among them who gets to live. Mm, gotcha. Right? Like performing a little bit of battlefield medicine. Right. So that somebody who's it's not quite their time yet gets off the battlefield. Gotcha. That's the theory. That like then there's no, virtually no like evidence for this because like I said these like three references to Air which are ambiguous and could mm-hmm. be contradictory are basically all we have about her. But we do know she has something to do with medicine. She's described as a good physician. She's somehow connected to the Valkyrie. It would be interesting if we could ever find out if. Air is one of one of those like spirits or deities that can be if you can acquire the title and position by doing deeds. It's possible. Like I said, there's so much ambiguity and because we do know that Air was used at least poetically as just a kenning for women generally. Right, right. Um it's possible. I, it, yeah. just, just big question marks. Big yeah. question just, marks. Uh, Air is another one of those Norse deities that that we just can't even confirm was a deity. Right. <laughs> just she's in the list somewhere. She's in the list somewhere. Well, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And hey, we did it. Yes. We managed to do a speed through of our second deity. So we encourage you to go look up and find out as much as you can, mm-hmm. even if it's only three sentences. Yes. And be careful when you're looking up Er, because there is a lot of UPG out yep. about Er in um, modern heathen circles. You'll find a lot of things... Represented as if they're factual. Find a lot of people talking about like in folklore, Er was was honored with the Er flower. But no, as far as I can tell, that's nonsense. That like yeah. there is no identifiable Er flower, not associated with any flowers in any of the three times she's mentioned. Just word association at that point. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't find any folk traditions about her at all. These people are all just repeating each other. So do you? Do your due diligence mm-hmm. and uh, cite, be sure of your sources, I guess yeah. is what I'm trying to say. Check for citation. Uh, you can find us on Google if you Google the number three and the words pagans of a cat or the number three and the letters P-A-A-C. Mm-hmm. We've got a Redbubble and a Patreon and a Discord and Gwen has a TikTok channel. Yep. Which apparently I was, I was informed that there is somebody impersonating me on TikTok so do please remember, just like on Instagram, I do not slide into your DMs and ask you if you would like a reading. I don't do that. People who want a reading from me can, t- can contact me at gwyn at threepigsandacat.com and we can discuss terms. But otherwise, I do not solicit readings. Why do you get spoofed so relentlessly? I don't know. It's not like I'm this big popular person. There's other people who can be and spoofed. This is like the fourth or fifth weird. time that it's you've weird. been spoofed. Anyway. That's not Gwen. It's not me. Gwen doesn't reach out to you to self-promote. No. Nope. You, you got to reach out to her if you want a rating. All right. That's right. We do want to say, as always, thank you to our patrons. Yes. We love you. Appreciate you supporting this podcast. Mm-hmm. We are, are doing our best to try to honor that and mm-hmm. uh, honor you all who listen and who, and just thank you. You guys are awesome. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.